Good morning again. Thank you for being here. I know that several of you are here visiting um, in order to see and hear our children uh, tell us the Christmas story. And we will have that opportunity in just a few moments. But in the meantime, I have been tasked with stalling so that our leaders and kids have an opportunity to make some additional preparations for their presentation. So as we stall, I want to invite you to look with me at today's gospel text for the fourth Sunday in, fourth and final Sunday in Advent. Today we turn to Matthew's telling of the beginning of the gospel story, and as we do, we find perhaps one of the most marginal characters in the story. Marginal, though everybody is familiar with this character, and he's definitely going to make an appearance in the story told by our children this morning. And yet, I think in many ways, he still functions sort of in the background of this story, talking about the man named Joseph, which I know it may seem like a stretch to suggest that he's a background character in the story. I mean, if you take somebody who is unfamiliar with most of the biblical story, Joseph might still be one of, I don't know, the top ten names that they might be familiar with on some level. So Joseph certainly has some name recognition, but we don't find a whole lot of detail in the gospel accounts about this man, especially after this specific story. You know, many believe that by the time Jesus begins his public ministry, Joseph has died by that point. Furthermore, as we look at Luke's gospel story, we see that he relies, focuses heavily on, on Mary, the mother of our God, and rightfully so. We, we find there lengthy conversations between Mary and Elizabeth. We have that spectacular song of praise, the Magnificat, on the lips of Mary. Matthew, though, chooses to focus on Joseph rather than Mary. But even in Matthew's gospel, we still don't find Matthew record a single word on the lips of Joseph. And yet, despite that silence, despite maybe his less prominent role in the story, Matthew, I think, makes the case that he's actually a really important character for a couple of reasons. Let's read the story and then we'll consider those reasons. Matthew chapter 1, beginning in verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son and he called his name Jesus. A wonderful telling of the story, though obviously much shorter than Luke's version of these events that lead up to the birth of Jesus. 
And at the center of Matthew's story, we find this man named Joseph, a fascinating character in his own right if we slow down long enough to consider him. And one of Matthew's focal points is showing how Jesus is, in fact, in the line of David, and thus his arrival fulfills prophecies about the true king in David's line who would one day come and establish his rule over God's people forever. Notice, in in this story, we have a small detail that I think is significant. Verse 20, the angel says, Joseph, son of David. Just like with Matthew's detailed genealogy for Jesus, he, he goes to great lengths to show how Jesus is the Messiah Israel had been expecting. Certainly significant. But what about the man himself? What about Joseph? I mean, he doesn't seem altogether special. He doesn't seem very remarkable. He's a carpenter by trade, presumably where Jesus himself learns that trade. He's one of those guys that, as we read the story, he seems content to work hard, to use his giftings to bless others, and to find meaning and purpose in that, even though that life didn't involve getting rich. It didn't involve securing power or even changing the world in any explicit way, and and yet it did change the world in small, but I think significant ways, using his gifts to benefit others. But he's also depicted by Matthew here as a man of honor, a man of honor. I mean, think about the situation he's in. He is undoubtedly and understandably crushed by the news he receives about the woman he plans to marry. We're told that they are betrothed. An engagement in this historical context uh, was much more permanent than maybe some of the fleeting relationships we might be familiar with in the 21st century world. To end an engagement in the first century was, it was a big deal. It was actually a legal matter. It wasn't just a matter of Joseph having a conversation where he says, you know what, Mary, it's not working out. I think we should see other people. It's not you. It's me. I'm sure many in the room have had uh, been on the receiving end of a statement like that. Or maybe you were the active party in trying to be the first in human history to use that line, it's not you, it's me, and have it land in a positive way. In the first century, it's much more involved than that. So because of what has transpired, Joseph determines this this isn't going to work out. But being a just man, as Matthew tells us, and unwilling to bring shame onto Mary, though in this historical context, if the woman you're planning to marry informs you she's pregnant and you know it's not your child, shame and scandal would have been inevitable. It would have been unavoidable and probably expected, but not in this case. Because we're told Joseph is a man of honor, a man of great virtue, and he decides even in, understandably, his moment of pain and confusion, even though he's likely experiencing feelings of betrayal, he decides to end things quietly. He's not setting a time bomb on his way out of the door. 
the way many might be tempted to abandon an unpleasant situation. You know, I'm out of here and I'm going to make sure to destroy as much as possible as I go. No, even though he is hurting, he doesn't allow his pain to push him to cause pain to another. And I think it's a really simple fact, but I think it's an important lesson to be learned here. Joseph still clearly cares deeply about Mary. He wants what is best for her, even though he has been hurt. He's, I think, a remarkable example of honor and love that should be emulated. As he is less concerned with his own feelings and even his own sense of shame than he is with helping prevent further heartache and harm for Mary. A person of honor and selflessness. And I think there are perhaps some resonances between Joseph's story and many of ours in that, like Joseph, most in this room, I don't want to speak for everybody, but most of us are not altogether special. Our lives aren't altogether remarkable on the surface. Most of us don't have any sense of notoriety or are we engaged in world-changing affairs, and yet we can still have an impact Because like Joseph, we are capable of becoming people of honor. But even more than that, we can have a lasting impact. Because like this story, God is still breaking into our world. Like Joseph, God is still often arresting us and inviting us into his life. If we can be attentive and have our eyes and ears, as we sang to open our time together, have our eyes and ears open to receive from him and follow where he leads. Now, last week, as we read the words from James 5, that invitation into a life of patient trust, even in the midst of great difficulty, one of the things we suggested that enables patient trust, one of the things that allows hope to spring in the middle of despair is the reminder that the present moment is not the end of the story. In this moment, we are even now eagerly anticipating the return of Jesus who will judge in righteousness and establish justice once and for all, who will rectify everything that has gone wrong in our lives and in the world. Advent helps us return to that truth that the present moment is not the end of the story. The second reminder that is baked into this story, the second reminder that pervades Advent, a feature that grounds these birth narratives that describe the arrival of the Christ child. And we certainly see it in Luke's story, as we will hear in a moment from our kids, but we also see it, a prominent feature of this story that focuses on Joseph. In verse 20, we find Joseph visited by an angel of the Lord in a dream. Now, he had resolved to act according to his own wisdom, according to a desire for justice, but also out of a deep and abiding love and concern for his betrothed Mary. But those plans are interrupted. And I understand that with our modern and enlightened sensibilities, this can be difficult to wrap our minds around, but we are told that the angel of the Lord interrupts his sleep and in so doing interrupts his best laid plans. He says, no, go ahead. Take Mary as your wife. The child is from the Holy Spirit. She will have a son and you will call him Jesus, Yeshua. 
God is our salvation. He will save you, not from your temporal enemies, but he will save you from your real enemy. He will save you from your sins. God is breaking into the world to act on behalf of humankind. This is a hopeful declaration we make during Advent. So not only is the present moment not all there is, but we are not the only active participants in this story, not even the primary active participants in this story. God is. James K.A. Smith summed it up like this. He said, hope is possible precisely because you don't think the present is all there is, and you also don't think that humans are the only agents in this, that the God of the cosmos, who fires the world with love, is out ahead of us, which is precisely why there can always be new possibilities. A source of great hope for us as the people of God, despite the ache of the present, we remember during Advent that the present moment is not all there is, and we as the human race are not the only active agents in this, but instead the God of love is out ahead of us. The God of love is still breaking into our world in a noticeable way, as he has become like us, that we might see who our God is and be saved by our God. I believe that like this story, that God today continues to make impossible things possible. For us as the human race, but also in our individual stories. And I believe for each of us today that he is again inviting us into his life, and into his salvation. I invite you into that recognition that this small child that we worship, think about today, is in fact the king of the world. I want to say a prayer for us and then we're going to invite our kids to tell us a different version of this story. Lord Jesus, we pause as we head into what is undoubtedly a very busy week the hustle and the bustle, we pause again to recognize you as our king. Breaking into our world in vulnerability and humility, Lord Jesus, we worship you. And so we pray, stir up your power, O Lord, and with great might come among us. And as we are sorely hindered by our sins from running the race that is set before us, let your bountiful grace and mercy speedily help and deliver us through Jesus Christ our Lord, to whom with you and the Holy Spirit be honor and glory now and forever.